All right, run it. I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Use the word I. Kick a break. We have an aversion to ourselves and to what's happening inside us. Inside us. I've been very interested in this problem for a long, long time. Something settles. Welcome back, you beautiful animals. I'm your host, Mitch Wallace, and I'm glad to be doing this again with you. This is an incredible talk with an incredible, incredible man, Dr. Dan Brown. Now, this guy, I mean, his CV is intimidating to say the least. He's an associate clinical professor in psychology at Harvard Medical School, where he served in the medical faculty for 37 years. He's the senior author of a major textbook on the treatment of attachment disorders in adults. Um, And he served as an expert witness in the courts in over 200 lawsuits relating to psychological damages from trauma and abuse. He's even been an expert witness. He's provided testimony in the International War Crimes Tribunal. He studied under leading uh, Eastern meditation teachers, even meditation originators, i.e. people who have developed the actual practice itself. And he's spent 46 years translating meditation texts from Tibetan and Sanskrit into English. He has the only scientific study identifying the neurocircuitry of the meditative experience on the awakened mind. I mean, that just sounds cool. (laughs) Dr. Dan Brown's uh, background in Western psychology and Eastern meditation traditions really offers a unique integration of the Western side of things on peak performance and positive psychology and trauma with the classical Buddhist Eastern lineage. And this is quite a technical episode, as in we geek out hard on psychology theory and science and all that stuff, but I try as much as I can uh, to interpret that so that it is understandable and digestible for people who haven't necessarily got degrees in this stuff but want to apply the learnings in your everyday life. So I hope that comes across. I tried as hard as I possibly could. And I want to pull this snippet or soundbite up front. Um, Have a listen. Relationships are the more of a predictor than anything else, the quality of the relationship on your mental health. And that can, when done well, be a number one protective factor or when not done well, be the number one determinant of suffering. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that, yes. Basically, what this shows is the importance of relationships and its effect on the brain and how just how important our connections with other people are. And as you just heard a Harvard professor say that if there's one thing we're going to invest in, it's how we, how we relate to others, how we connect with others and how much of a return on investment that can have when we pay attention to it and actively do it in the right way. So I hope you enjoy it and I look forward to seeing you back here very soon. I'm sure this one is going to be a uh, a life changer for some of you. Before we kick off, uh, I just want to uh, welcome you officially to Australia. You're in Melbourne at the moment, yeah? I'm in Melbourne, yes. How are you finding our lovely country? Well, I've come here every year for about a month or two months a year, every March and April. And we love your country. We, 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 we always try and, because it's a long way to come, we always try and make a vacation out of it. And that means I've been to the Outback four times. I've been to Great Barrier Reef a few times. We've been to Ningaloo in the western coast to swim with the whale sharks once. We, we all do some adventure in your country. Yeah, I was going to say, so you're pretty much a uh, more of a local than I am. So I uh, I should be asking you questions. <laughs> Next year we're going to Arnhem Land, back to the Outback. Amazing, amazing. 
Um, well, we're very privileged to have a guest like you uh, on this podcast. And I think uh, it was my birthday last night and um, or yesterday, and I was out last night um, celebrating my 29th. Happy birthday. Thank you very much, Dan. And, um, I'm 70. Well, <laughs> you, uh, you're doing bloody well for 70, let me tell you, my friend. Um, and when I was out last night, my friends were saying, you know, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, I'm actually interviewing Dr. Dan Brown, one of the greatest thought leaders in the mental health space and in the spirituality space, I would say, that's ever lived in the modern world. And they said, you better get home and have a good rest then. <laughs> and so that I did. Um, and I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of people listen to what you have to say from a clinical setting. Um, and you're involved in a lot of legal settings and it's all very official, but I guess I'd like to, on the theme of birthdays, um, go back to a little bit about where, where you come from as a, as a person, uh, as opposed to a teacher. And can you talk us through a little bit about your story and your, and your past, your childhood? Well, I grew up in a working class family. My father had to work three jobs, mostly in factories, to support three kids after World War II. And the family didn't support education because they couldn't afford it. So I had to work, work my way through college. I had to go to the state school and work my way through college in three jobs, like my father. And then I got a Danforth, which was a scholarship that was given for young, talented teachers, and they paid for full tuition and living expenses at the University of Chicago for four years of graduate school, and that was my ticket. Then after that, I went to do my clinical internship at Harvard, and I've been in Harvard ever since. I've been on the faculty for 38 years. Amazing. And... Was there, um, what was the point in, in your life? Was there a moment in your childhood or teenage years where you started to become interested in psychology and the mind? Well, I was an average student. I wasn't that good a student and until fourth grade. And I had a fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Merchant, and she saw something in me and I just flourished. I became the best student in the class. I became an artist and discovered artist, artistic ability. So the following year, I was working for an advertising company and making good money at the age of 11 years of age. I, I never turned back after that. She, she just, I just blossomed because I had some teacher who had some faith in me. So Mrs. Merchant, we have a lot to thank her for. Um, so consider her uh, all of our appreciation going going to her. And was she? did she have particular interest in, in the mind or psychology or she just sparked your curiosity for learning? She just had faith in that I was a smart student, which I didn't have in myself. And, and I, she saw something in me and I just flourished. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, as part of that flourishing, um, that could have gone a number of ways uh, as as someone who is obviously as gifted as you are. Why, is, why have you chosen to apply your gift to the field of mental health? I didn't start out in mental health. I started out in molecular biology. I was a prodigy in molecular biology, and I, I worked at MIT when I was 16 years old, and they invited me to a summer program in research at Cold Springs Harbor. I worked at the, the same years that Watson discovered DNA, and it was, molecular biology was the up-and-coming field. And then the Vietnam War came, and it seemed like growing invisible bugs in the laboratory seemed increasingly irrelevant to what was going on in the world. So I decided to leave molecular biology and learn about the mind. I thought it was a more relevant profession and I'm happy I never turned back after that. I've been in clinical psychologist now for 48 years. That's a long time. It is. It is a long time. And I'm sure in your years you've seen a lot. And I would imagine that considering the context of the war, that trauma has always been a field of interest. Trauma and attachment, yes. Yep. And so um, Dan Siegel shares a lot of your views and particularly a lot of your passion sets around trauma and attachment. Um, have you guys met in person? 
No, I don't particularly like some of his stuff on neurobiology. It, it's not accurate to some of the neuroscience. I actually read all the neuroscience journals, and so we have some differs, uh, differing opinions on things. Well, uh, two great minds to battle it out, both guests on this podcast. So um, I would I would love to be a fly on the wall for those discussions. Um, but you know, just touching back on your father, you said your father had had that amazing work ethic. Um, do you think that? modeling that from him has been what's got you to where you are today you know writing countless books and etc oh for sure uh, he would work piecework which means that if you just punched a clock you could make a certain income fixed income but if you he was making parts on the lathe and out of steel and if you did piecework then you can push yourself and pace yourself and, and do a maximum output but if you make mistakes then mistakes you made at the dock from your pay so the idea is to find the right edge to that pacing so that you can maximize your output and make much more money that way and he always did that and he came home after working very hard all day happy he was covered with oil he was happy and he found that edge to pressing himself at that limit and i think that's how i got interested in performance excellence finding that edge of one's performance and challenging oneself a little bit more. I taught a course in performance excellence at Harvard Medical School for over 30 years. I have a version for doctors and primary care doctors and surgeons. I have a version for judges and lawyers and a version for CEOs. And so let's just kind of tap on that um, and take a quick detour into into high performance. Um what have you noticed to be kind of the top three traits or characteristics of people who are high performers? Well, I wouldn't talk about it in terms of characteristics. It, it, there, in Mike Schick's and Mihai's work on flow states, he found that there are two necessary ingredients. One is heightened attentiveness, that people who are in a flow state are very can sustain their attention in a remarkable way and resist distraction and they're rather single-minded about what they do and the other thing they can do is they can challenge themselves they're always finding what their edge of their range of talents are and when they go a little bit above that edge all of the time shiks and mihai call that the skill to challenge ratio the idea is to always find new ways of challenging yourself but not challenging yourself so much that the anxiety has a disorganizing effect but always finding the edge to your learning and staying in that edge and you're continuously in a flow state that way. That's how we cultivate the flow state. And I guess there's an assumption in that sentence or model that the flow state then is the main uh, path to peak performance is permanently being at your edge. And also heightened attentiveness. The, from a neuroscience point of view, the attention center of the brain is the anterior cingulate cortex or the ACC. So if I give you an index card and it has the text written out on it green and the color of the text is red, do you do a double take? Do you focus on the color? Or do you focus on the text itself? And it takes a certain effort to tune the color out and focus on the text or to tune the text out and focus on the color. And when you have text, text tests like that of competing attentional demands, the ACC gets activated. The ACC is that area of the brain that's underactive in children and adults who have attention deficit disorder. When you do concentration meditation, not mindfulness, the ACC gets activated. When you hypnotize someone and they just focus on the hypnotist words and tune everything else out, you activate the ACC. When an athlete spontaneously enters a flow state and is on his game and his performance, he activates the ACC. The brain's an equal opportunity employer. It doesn't make any difference whether you use drugs like Ritalin or Ativan that activate the ACC or, or Adderall, or whether you use mind-body techniques like hypnosis or concentration meditation. They all have a common pathway of activating the ACC. Okay, that's interesting. So, so I guess what we're trying to do, therefore, is cultivate heightened attentiveness and uh, singular focus whilst uh, challenging ourselves to be at our edge and the function of those two things produces increased performance output. Is that correct? 
Yes, and what makes you challenge yourself with your edge is your metacognitive capacity. That is the capacity to step back and reflect on the strategies you're using while solving problems or reflect on what your state of mind is so you constantly can, at high speeds, self-correct. The right dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex is the metacognitive center of the brain. And when people are in a heightened state of attentiveness, they're constantly monitoring what they're doing so to stay on that edge. They're using that metacognitive awareness to, to be right at the edge of their challenge limit. That, that's a beautiful dichotomy, which, by the way, is a term that you would probably not believe in and or never use. Uh, and I would agree um, from being from a mindfulness kind of Buddhist mindset, the black is the white, the opposite is the same as uh, its its counter. Um, so there is no uh, or, there's always an and. But, you know, in its, in its uh, most apparent form, uh, it would look as though you're trying to get contradictory goals because on one hand, to get peak performance, you're trying to get very singularly focused on your attention um, but on the other hand, with being at your edge, building this metacognitive capacity, you're also trying to be reflective and somewhat open-minded of what's happening so that you can stay balanced and stay challenged. So what seems to be two opposing goals is actually complementing one another completely. Is that right? Well, not exactly. When when metacognition was first discovered by John Flavel in 1976 at Stanford University, he called it thinking about thinking. And that's not what it is. It's actually the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is not the thought center of the brain. It's, it has to do with pure awareness. So what we do is we confuse thought and awareness as if they're the same thing. When a person is metacognitively monitoring, they working with their awareness at very high speeds. They're not necessarily thinking about what they're doing. In fact, thinking is too slow for an Olympic athlete to monitor their performance while they're doing high-speed figure skating doesn't require thinking about what they're doing. It requires pure awareness of what they're doing. That's a huge difference. So how do you cultivate that awareness? So if we're cultivating high attention, which I think everyone would be fairly able to grasp by now, um, how do you cultivate high awareness? It's not just a high awareness. It's awareness about what your, your state of mind is, and it's some we know that it has to do with attachment behavior in childhood that kids whose parents are constantly curious about and wondering out loud about their child's state of mind the child will internalize that awareness and activate and the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex will mature and grow better so some people come into the world with a greater capacity for metacognition than others because their parents were the kind of parents who constantly were curious about their child's state of mind. If you if you don't learn it, there's ways that you can develop metacognitive ability. There's out of Tavistock in the UK and out of the Sweden and out of the Netherlands, there are three research projects now on developing metacognition and metacognitive skills in children because it's a necessary part of problem solving and high performance in daily life. So we're just beginning to see training courses developed for this. Okay. So for all the entrepreneurs out there, um, or even applying to our own mental health, when we want to improve at something, when we want to uh, push our performance on anything, um, we should be trying to find our edge. Uh, and so I talk a lot about getting comfortable in the discomfort. And I think this point kind of proves that is, how do we be okay with finding that point before injury, but after um, ease and consistently challenging ourselves to be passionately focused on building particular skills and having faith in the process that if you're getting up to meditate of a morning um, because you want that to help your anxiety, that, that you, even though it's challenging, that challenge is part of the growth. Exactly, and that applies to peak performance and also applies to concentrated meditation. There's a Sufi tale that says a log sits very quietly on a woodpile for years, but logs never realize God, so don't sit like a log, sit medic with metacognitive intelligence.
<laughs> so many meditators will just sit there and meditate and never reflect on the quality of the meditation. I did outcome studies as a psychologist on mindfulness meditators for 10 years, and we found that a lot of them would develop a lot of bad habits and no one was ever correcting the habits. And the meditation was getting very sloppy. And, and most of the teachers weren't training them, the students, to metacognitively reflect on the quality of the meditation and, and constantly improve it. There was a study done on concentration meditation in both beginning and advanced concentrators. And the study found that both the beginning and advanced concentrators activated the ACC, the concentration center of the brain. But only the advanced concentrators, not the beginning concentrators, activated the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the metacognitive part of the brain. And advanced concentration had nothing to do with years of practice. It, it had to do with whether the person was monitoring, metacognitively monitoring the quality of the meditation and constantly correcting it and improving it rather than to get complacent and develop a lot of bad habits. Mm. And this is what I really struggled with with meditation. And when I started to get my head around it, it really improved my ability to to flourish, which was I needed to be present enough to be concentrated on whatever I was thinking about, like the breath or a mantra or whatever, um, trying to zone out all the other noise and to become focused so that I could find some peace and space, but not so much so that I then became that thought and had no reflective capacity as to, oh, my mind's drifted off um, or hey, that might not be a helpful way to approach that thought or I'm attaching to that to that feeling. And so it's this really delicate balance, um, kind of like the accelerator and brake system that no one way, if you focus too much on one side of the equation, you're over-indexing. And so for things like meditation, and I also think life, a healthy balance between focus and reflection is, is the kind of uh, ideal state. That's well said. Thank you. So picking up on a point that you had before, um, you mentioned attachment. And I guess this is my most passionate area. As a, uh, I've got my master's in psychology at, at Columbia, and uh, we focused a lot on kind of the, the mind-body aspect of it, but particularly the aspect of, of relationships. Whenever I kind of stand up and this community is so sick of me hearing me say that um, good mental health is more about changing our relationship to our experience so that we respond better uh, rather than trying to take the problem away or fix it. Um, and so I want to pause and just hear your center, uh, your reflection on that. Well, good mental health is related to attachment in a fundamental way. There are a number of studies that were done out of Tavistock with the adult attachment inventory, which is a structured interview that measures attachment status in adults. And those studies found that particularly those who have what we call disorganized attachment as adults, it, it predicts lots of mental health problems, more than in, you know, a good part of the variance. You know, mental health problems are predicted by disorganized attachment. This is very, very important. And we're about to open the door to the attachment psychology. And I'm going to play a bit of a translator to make sure that this role, to this, the science kind of comes across to our listeners in a, in a um, digestible fashion. So, what we're saying is that relationships with others, i.e. connection, is the number one protective factor in cultivating good mental health. Would you agree with that statement? And also the reason that people come into therapy in the first place. Right. Larry Butler, the editor of the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology for several decades, did a study in the 90s and he found that 51% of people who come to therapy don't come in for DSM or ICD diagnosable psychiatric conditions. They come in for dissatisfaction with relationships or dissatisfaction with their self-development or both. Bingo. Bingo. So what we're seeing here, um, and I want to, I want to make sure we get very emphasis, like I want to put a lot of emphasis on it, that relationships are the more of a predictor than anything else. Um, the quality of the relationship on your mental health and that can when done well be a number one protective factor or when not done well be the number one determinant of suffering um would you agree with that 
I would agree with that. Yes. And so to to kind of back back into the your research around what you're doing in attachment project, um, and uh, with the most recent book that you wrote, uh, which I want to get into, what we're kind of finding here is that trauma, um, i.e., not necessarily incredibly uh, acute things like seeing bombs explode. Um, it could be more subtle forms of trauma, i.e. anything that causes the individual to suffer distress that is an external event uh, in the form of um, something material or a relationship. Trauma happens and it is less about the impact of that trauma um, and in terms of whether it's going to affect us and more about whether we have a secure attachment style. I would say that there are three trauma maps, or three, I'm sorry, three relational maps. The first relational map is develops around 10 to 24 months, peaking at 18 months, and that's attachment maps. And that's, uh, there are four types of attachment, and the four types of attachment, and the names for them in adults are secure attachment, dismissing attachment, anxious preoccupied attachment, and disorganized attachment. That map is developed around 18 months, concurrent with the development of representational thinking. And it was studied uh, originally with a standard laboratory paradigm called the strange situation paradigm by Mary Ainsworth and her associates. And her mother is brought into the play lab with her son between the ages of 10 and 20 months. And there are toys on the floor, and there's a couple of chairs around the floor, and there you observe the mother and child in interaction for three minutes without in clear instructions. And then a stranger who's a confederate to the research comes in, and you see the child's response to the stranger and how that affects the play behavior for the next three minutes. Then the mother is asked to leave, and you see what the child's reaction to the mother leaving is and how that affects the play behavior in the presence of the stranger for three minutes. Then the mother comes back at the same time the stranger leaves and you see the reunion behavior between mother and child and how that affects the play behavior for three minutes. Then the mother is asked to leave and the child is left alone for three minutes and you see what the play behavior is like when the child is alone for three minutes. Then the mother comes back and there's a second reunion. So you get all the possibilities in there. And what Bowlby discovered way back when in the 1940s and Mary Ainsworth had a paradigm to test it in the laboratory with direct observation was that the paradox of human development is that the more secure the child is, the more the child sees himself or herself as a safe, the parent as a safe haven, the more independent they get and the more complex the exploratory behavior. In a securely attached child, the child socially references the mother, looks at the mother, and then turns away and starts explaining with the toys, and the play behavior gets more and more complex. A securely attached child has a clear preference for the mother over the stranger or being alone but it doesn't being alone with the stranger doesn't necessarily interfere too much with play behavior and they clearly protest when the mother leaves and they get reconstitute themselves and go back to the play behavior so healthy attachment is an interplay between healthy attachment behavior on the one hand and a healthy exploratory behavior and independence on the other hand kids who grow up to have what we call dismissing attachment they don't. They deactivate the attachment system. They show no clear preference for the mother over the stranger or being alone. They just do the toys, but they get easily frustrated. And they just disconnect from the relationships. There's almost no reunion behavior. It's quite dramatic. And kids who have what we call anxious preoccupation do the opposite. They have inhibited exploratory behavior and kind of clingy attachment behavior so that in the unfamiliar play environment. They need a lot of coaxing to play with the toys at all and to show any curiosity. And once the mother leaves, they get pretty disorganized. Kids who have disorganized attachment deactivate both the attachment system and the exploratory system. And they show a lot of disorganization and a lot of dissociative behaviors. So those are the four prototypes. Those prototypes are locked in at 18 months and over 40 year Longitudinal studies, 75% of those kids will not change that map. 
and have the same map so that kids who are dismissing will disconnect and show distance in relationships growing up in adolescence and in adulthood. Kids who are secure will grow up having intimate, close intimate relationships and be secure. People who are anxious, preoccupied will grow up with a lot of anxiety about keeping relationships. And they get really clingy in relationships and kids who grow up disorganized, those are the ones that are going to have the most mental health problems. So those maps are well set in by 18 months. And there's a second map that develops in the third or fourth year. We call it the CCRT map, the core conflict relational themes. In the third or fourth year, there are complex beliefs that are developed in children as mediated by a family and by the cultural environment about what's possible to the self in relationships. And those are more complex maps. And it determines how people select relationships and so the way that we determine those maps is we take a history of intimate relationships and step back and look at the patterns and you'll see that there's it's like a complex piece of music there's an underlying theme or several themes and infinite variations on the same few themes but people's relational behavior is purposeful they select the same old same old conflicts over and over again in relationships those maps are developed in the third and fourth year. They're interpretable. They're at a time that the child has memory so that in short-term therapy, you can identify the core conflict relational themes and say what you keep looking for in relationship is this, this, and this, and what you expect to find instead is this, this, and this, and it doesn't work. And if you keep the person on the theme of identifying that dysfunctional core conflict relational map and remap it, then the person will select healthy secure intimate relationships after that. There's a third relational map, and that's a trauma bonding map for people who are in severe traumatic situations like the hostage-taking situations, like the Stockholm Syndrome, or in battering relationships or incestuous relationships. And those maps have to do with the clear imprint of traumatic experiences that they have had. So these are the three relational maps. There's the attachment map, and the CCRT map and the trauma bonding map. And we could simply say that the difference is that whether you have trouble with relationships, which is an attachment problem, or whether you have trouble within relationships, which is a CCRT problem. But not all relational disturbance is the same, and we try and determine for each individual which relational map they have the most problem with and then treat accordingly and change the map. Wow. Amazing. A lot there. I'm going to break this down a little bit. So... The number one thing I'm going to pull out is that relationships are very, very important and that we don't define relationship in this context by a spouse. We're not necessarily talking about romantic. We're talking of, well, actually more at the moment about parent to child, um, but relationships and attachment in general refers to your relationship with your coworker, your siblings, your children, your friends, your family, spouse, etc. So, First of all, really important that relationship means connection to other, and that's the part that we're trying to cultivate um, and avoid the bad the bad aspects of it. So, the second thing I want to say is that for those interested now, thinking, "Oh shit, I wonder what attachment style I have," um, you can go and do an attachment survey um, on your website, attachmentproject.com. I think it is. Um, and there, there are a bunch of ways to, to determine that through, um, uh, online surveys. And if you're seeing a psychologist at the moment, your therapist can walk you through attachment, um, what attachment style you have through those surveys. And I would really encourage you to, to do attachment work, uh, with your therapist, um, not least of which, which Dan and I will explore in a second, um, why it's so important and sometimes, the primary thing that should be treated, attachment issues, more so than trauma or situational issues. But I also wanted to call out that what what we saw there through the four attachment models um, that, that you described, one is healthy, which is secure attachment, and three are unhealthy. Um, and I guess what, what we'll see is unhealthy means um, not too far on either end of the spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, you're super clingy, you're, you're completely dependent on someone, you have fear for your environment, you don't want to explore. Um, and then on the other end, you're completely cold, shut down, you don't want to feel soothed by the other, uh, you don't want to engage in intimacy with the mother, etc. 
and you're fiercely independent. Fiercely independent, but yes, so much so that it's de- almost detrimental. Um, and so what we're looking at is the middle ground between those two things, uh, which no coincidence, again, we're coming back to the middle ground, uh, parallels to Buddhism and, and spirituality, which is um, where you have a lot of experience. But if you're not into that, it doesn't matter. Science has shown that the middle path between those two things, i.e. the ability to connect and have form of relationship and feel safe and go there for safety, but also to leave that and to be independent, um, but then make sure those two things are then operating in a dynamic nature so that you're not like the meditation thoughts. You're not so far into your thoughts that you become blocked off, but you have enough mindfulness and enough reflective capacity to stay open. So I think, I think we've broken that part down. My, my, I would add one more thing to that, and that is that those who are deactivate both the attachment system and the exploratory system, those who have disorganized attachment, those are the ones that are going to grow up to have the most mental health problems. Bingo. Bingo. And disorganized is something I'm super passionate about because it's the one that is most closely related to trauma and it causes a biological paradox where you want to go to something for safety, but the safety object is uh, instilling fear. So it causes an unsolvable solution. Um, but the the implications right now is so, someone listening to this is probably thinking one of a few things. The first thing is... Um, holy shit, what is my attachment style? Second thing is, um, what happens if something that's supposed to be baked in, that's unfair, I want to change it if, if for whatever reason I'm insecure or unhealthy right now, which I want to ask you questions about in a second. The other thing they might be thinking is, holy shit, I'm a parent. I have so much responsibility to ensure that my child has gets a healthy attachment system. How do I do that? And so I'm going to break that down into two two parts the first is how do we make sure that we are giving others safe havens to ensure that we are uh, custodians of someone else receiving healthy attachment can you describe what those behaviors would look like parents we we identified five functions of secure attachment the first is the parent makes the child feel safe and protects them from harm so protection of the species is the fundamental evolutionary quality of long-term attachment. The second is that parents who supply their child with security are carefully attuned to them. They are interested in everything the child does, but not just they're interested in the child's behavior, they're interested in the child's state of mind, and they're constantly curious about and wondering out loud about the child's state of mind. So the child feels seen and known in the deepest ways. The third function is soothing. That when the child is emotionally upset, the parent provides physical contact and comfort and verbal reassurance. The fourth function of attachment is what we call express delight. That parents are openly effusive about their delight of everything the child does, and more important, they're delighted about the child's being. That's the source of self-esteem. In the Hempstead Clinic in the UK, there's a Joe Sandler developed a definition for self-esteem, a developmental definition. He calls it the linking of positive emotions to the self-representation. So you learn to associate positivity, emotional positivity, with your sense of self. So for an older child or for an adult, if you conjure up your sense of self, if I conjure up dandness, for example, the sense of dandness, I conjure that up against the backdrop of good feeling. If I have healthy esteem, but if I if failed to develop that healthy esteem, chronically failed to develop that self-esteem. When I conjure up my sense of self, I conjure up a sense of self, but there's no positive feeling associated with it. So I have this fundamental sense that there's something missing in my life. Or I conjure up negative feelings, and at which point I'm depression vulnerable. But what people who are what we call narcissistically vulnerable can't do is conjure up positive feelings associated directly with their sense of self. And where that comes from in human development is parents who are openly effusive in, about their positive, loving ways about everything that the child does and who the child is. And the reason why narcissism is such an epidemic in Western culture is because parents are too busy. They're involved in the job of parenting, but not the joy of parenting. They're too busy to really enjoy their children. 
And that's why this positivity is often absent in uh, astronomical proportions in the West. And the fifth function of human attachment is that the best parents are the champions of the child's best and strongest and most independent self-development. They bring out the best of the child's independence and strength, and they help the child develop their best and strongest sense of self. Those are the five main functions of attachment. Nobody gets all of those fully, but if you get sufficient of those, you'll end up with secure attachment. And if you are absent of most of those, you will end up with some version of insecure attachment. So so to talk that back, the five things are, a, one, safety and refuge, i.e. the ability to supply... Sorry? Safety and protection. Safety and protection. The ability to, to supply someone um, a comfortable haven to retreat to, knowing that they will feel um, protected. Second thing is interest and curiosity. So being openly present, asking more questions than you give answers, showing that you care um, through your attention. Third is soothing and reassurance. So allowing someone to feel like you're going to say, you know, it's okay, we've got this, you know, we're going to get through this together. Fourth is express delight and affirmation. So actually not just always being in a place of reactive survival, but proactively being like, hey, this is what I really like. Uh, You know, I I would like to recognize how well you're doing or blah, blah, blah. And the fifth is self-development champion. So um, ensuring that you're playing a, a guiding role into helping that person become the best version of themselves possible. Did I get all that? That's a good summary. Cool. Yes. So, so then, um, oh, by the way, love the parenting is should be a, a joy, not a job. And I particularly loved the be seen and known because I, I honestly believe that's our number one human need is to feel understood, i.e. to feel seen and known. And it's through that, if we are getting that, then we will have good mental health because we will have a very good ability to respond to things, which means... Regardless of what happens, I am in good stead to respond to things effectively. Now, what I'm interested in before we move on to, well, how do I get that if I haven't got it already? So, so, so we know as a person how to give it to, to someone. It's those five things. And I think uh, it's not misguided of me to say that uh, it's not just a parent who can give that to, to others. They're, they're probably five qualities that we could focus on in any relationship. Is that correct? Well, in what we call secure intimacy with adulthood, then each of the members of the spousal relationship are giving that to each other, all five of those things. Okay, cool. So so before we move on to, to, to get, I want to talk about discipline. So as a parent, how do we give those five things to our child, but also, you know, we have a job to do in terms of discipline to make sure they don't run away. We can't be angelic all the time. How do we strike that balance? Well, for one thing, it means that parents need to learn about the importance of human attachment. But uh, unfortunately, most parents don't do that. Uh, At the National Institute of Mental Health in the 1980s, Stanley Greenspan did a lot of work on the development of emotions in children. And after 20 years of research on the development of emotions in children, he wrote a book called First Feelings. It was a manual for parents that was the best of everything we knew about emotional development in children. And the book went out of print in six months because nobody bought it because parents had this attitude that they know how to raise kids and it's a birthright to know how to do this and they didn't need to learn anything. And unfortunately, that's an attitude that's very prevalent among parents in Western culture. And uh, there's always room for improvement and uh, parents need to be coached better in terms of how to raise their kids to be the best kids, but they most don't want to learn. They think they know it already. That's a problem. Agreed. Agreed. And so, and so from a tactical setting, I think the discipline or well, borrowing from Dan Siegel's work, and I've already, I've already got you offside apparently by, by saying that, but, but, but Dan Siegel takes the view that we should invest in healthy attachment through the ability to give safe, caring energy and, and uh, refuges to people. However, 
in points of discipline or in points of conflict, whether that be with the child or in adult relationships, it's more important to then invest heavily in the repair and make sure that repair structure is done right versus never discipline a child at all and let them get away with murder or let your spouse walk over you or whatever. So so having healthy boundaries and investing in the repair process is a good balancing factor. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and there are different types of repair. If it's a child and the attachment is insecure, then there are two ways of repairing that. One mm -hmm. is that now what's happening in some labs is that people are taking videotapes of the mother and child in interaction and show the, the natures of the misattunement and then breaking down the tape in front of the parents like you break down tapes in sports performances and giving the parents feedback about how to better attune and it's a live coaching by using videotapes the second way that we work with the young children who have insecure attachment is to provide the family with attachment coaches. Carlin Lyons Ruth at Harvard Medical School has done that for 50 years. She identified parents at risk, parents who had major depressive disorder or parents who had borderline personality disorder or parents who had significant trauma or incest backgrounds or parents who were psychotic. And then she would bring in attachment coaches to into the home and do home visits and and there are didactic classes to teach the parents how to be better raise their children so they could raise secure children. And 50 years of data suggests that attachment coaches to high-risk populations works, that you can take kids who would otherwise grow up to have some version of insecure and mostly disorganized attachment and give attachment coaches to the parents in a way that you can correct for that. Now, with adults with attachment it. disorders, we've We've evolved what's called the three pillars treatment. And in a year to three years, you can develop a new positive map for relationships and secure intimacy in an adulthood and correct the problems of attachment. That's what our textbook on treatment of attachment in adults is about. Perfect segue. So so, so we know how to give it. How do we get it? So, so let's say we're someone who who didn't have a good upbringing and that is largely out of our control and we're sitting here being like that sucks like hey i didn't get a choice in this and it's supposed to be the most important thing as an adult then how do we go and earn secure attachment well we developed the treatment that took us 20 years to develop the treatment and we have separate treatments for anxious preoccupied attachment separate treatments for dismissing attachment and separate treatments for disorganized attachment the, each of the those are treatments has three components to it, or what we call the three pillars of treatment. The first are ideal parent figures. We say to the person who has an adult who has insecure attachment, we say, imagine you grew up in a family different from your family of origin, with a set of parents each ideally suited to you and your nature. And imagine they're being with you in a way that is, in the way that they're being with you is gives you absolute security in the attachment relationship. Then we'll go through the five functions of attachment that these ideal parent figures can provide safety and protection. They can be carefully attuned to you. They can be expressive in their delight and positivity about the being of the child. They can bring out the best of the child's self-development. And then depending on what went wrong specifically in terms of the research that we know, we'll try and do attachment repair by developing ideal parent figures and we call it positive remapping, that you can take what Bowlby called the internal working model for attachment, which is negative or inconsistent or fragmented and over time by having the patient visualize a healthy attachment figures, ideal parent figures over and over again. They develop a stable, positive internal working model for attachment and remap it, and then the old dysfunctional models simply become irrelevant. They start operating out of the new model, and they get better, and they select for adult, satisfying, secure, intimate relationships. That's the first pillar of treatment. And we did that because attachment behavior starts at the first days of life, but the attachment maps develop about 18 to 24 months. So it's not how you behave towards the adult client. It's more about whether the adult client is going to develop the right positive internal working model or map for relationships. So 
a lot of the therapies are around attachment are based on the therapist trying to provide a become a good attachment figure for their patient and that's a trap in, in my opinion it's yeah, the therapist tries to act as a good attachment figure they can't always do that so there are lots of therapeutic ruptures but if you do structured visualizations using imagination. Imagination creates new possibilities, so you can constantly shape and reshape the map over and over again until it feels just right in all these different ways. And you're developing a new positive internal map. So it's not how the therapist acts, it's whether you get the patient to develop the positive internal working map for the healthy, secure attachment. That's the first pillar. The second pillar is that we found that, that there's a number of metacognitive skills that need to develop in people who have attachment disturbances. Uh, at the Tavistock Clinic in the UK, they develop a thing called the reflective function scale, which is the capacity to reflect on your state of mind and most people in the general population score about 4.5 out of a one to nine scale in reflective capacity. That is that most of us are moderately psychologically minded. People who've been in years of psychotherapy and particularly analysis train themselves to look at their own states of mind. So they'll score eight or nine on the reflective function capacity. But Howard Steele told me from Tavistock that and we've done some collaborative research together. He said that they never found a patient at Tavistock in the psychiatric unit who had a borderline or mixed personality disorder diagnosis or a dissociative disorder patient who ever scored above three, that patients with personality and dissociative disorder diagnosis were so poor in metacognitive reflection, reflective capacity, that they developed an entire treatment around developing metacognitive capacity called MBT or mentalization-based treatment. And the outcome studies are enormously successful using those uh, ways of training metacognition, metacognitive skills in patients who lack them. The difference that I have with the Tavistock group is that most of their metacognitive skills are pre-formal. And there's a whole research area on post-formal metacognitive development. The Piaget developed a nice theory for intelligence. It goes up as far as formal operational thinking in adolescence. And if we think that... Uh, human intellectual development stops in adolescence, we're in trouble as a species. There are seven stages of adult post-formal cognitive development and metacognitive development. And most of those adult forms of metacognitive development have to do with one form or another perspective taking. And that we try and introduce these post-formal adult metacognitive skills into our patients who completely lack them. And by taking perspective in one way or another, they get better much quicker. It has a organizing effect on the mind we look at what's called coherence of mind and so for example if i take a patient with a borderline personality disorder diagnosis or dissociative disorder diagnosis like dissociative identity disorder and i say to that patient on a one to ten scale give me a sense of how organized or disorganized your mind is at this time one being completely disorganized ten being completely organized and the other numbers is a level in between and I get them to reflect metacognitively on the organization or lack thereof of organization at a given state of mind. And I ask that scale six times an hour, every hour that I work with the patient. Six months later, they have a much more significant organization of mind because the metacognitive capacity to observe that starts to shape in the direction of further organization of mind. So you can actually develop the create organizational coherence of mind by using these metacognitive skills. That's the second pillar of treatment. And the third pillar of treatment I learned from Giovanni Liate, who died earlier this year, unfortunately. He was in the Rome Institute of Cognitive Therapy, and I went over to study with him, and I invited him to talk at Harvard several times. And he said that the, uh, the collaborative system is different from the attachment system. And he introduced me to Michael Talmicello's work, the social anthropologist who spent 10 years working with primates. Chimpanzees and silverback gorillas will collaborate together to get food, but they won't collaborate around sharing the food very much. But what's unique about human evolution is that we can develop work teams and work on abstract projects together. 
So the huge leap in evolution from primates to humans was the capacity for collaborative behavior. And Tomasello did work on young children and found that secure children are naturally collaborative. They are the ones that share their toys in the preschool and are more empathic to when one of the other children is upset in the preschool. But kids who are insecure take their normal collaborative behavior offline so they they can't share and they, they're not empathic. So collaborative behavior is necessarily part of this human species, but if early attachment is disrupted, our collaborative behavior goes offline. So you see that in patients with personality and dissociative disorders you know, and who have attachment disturbances. So for example, somebody who has anxious preoccupation, they don't know how to take turns. They're constantly interrupting the other person and butting in and they can't, they can't do basic turn-taking behavior and basic discourse. And people who are dismissive uh, never talk about real things or talk about their feelings. So we found that we weren't doing any favors to our patients by observing these things and not giving patients feedback. So in a non-judgmental way, we'll teach our anxious, preoccupied patients how to take turns in dis- verbal discourse and and for dismissing patients to make eye contact and to show in their nonverbal behavior that they're actually attuned to the other person and they're interested in what the person's saying. And by doing these three things, remapping the attachment in positive ways, develop a new internal working model for attachment, developing a series of metacognitive skills and teaching collaborative behavior, then these patients over time have secure attachment and they organize the state of mind at a high level and they have good metacognitive capacity. The three things that we look for in our outcome research is that the person is secure, has secure attachment. That's the main criteria, that they have a relative good organization of mind or coherence of mind. And they have a range of mature adult formal, post-formal metacognitive operations. And they're collaborative both verbally and non-verbally. And if we meet those criteria, then we say the treatment is successful. And that means that the person should have a good capacity for intimate, secure adult relationships at that point. Wow, that is amazing. First of all, so much gratitude and thank, thanks for your work uh, helping these people and then also building frameworks that we can go and scale and, and, uh, and implement in different ways. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this home um, by summarizing and then expounding, if I may. Please. Thank you. Yeah, the biggest Uber, Uber point I want to I wanna drive home here is that although attachment is, is uh, in its most sensitive period in the first kind of little bit of life as you're a baby, um, it is dynamic in that it can be changed and or earned. So, so we can be, we can form secure attachment. And also on the other side of that, it's dynamic. So it's susceptible to change as well. So, so practicing healthy attachment your whole life to others and, and, uh, and from others is important to maintain the secure attachment. And so, um, so, so I want to make that clear. It can be changed, which is a really good thing, but it also means we need to invest in high-quality relationships our whole life because it's our biggest protective factor and risk factor in terms of good mental health. Now, reflecting on the three ways that we go and get that if, if we haven't got that, and I'm going to – I shouldn't be casual with the way that I say this, but I'm going to try and translate it and I'm going to traverse. And if my traversing is incorrect, you can, you can correct me, particularly because – as a, as a scientist, you're going to want to um, say, well, actually, we haven't proven that through data. But I'm going to I'm going to go a bit broad here. The thing that I took from point one with the imaginative parents exercise is that you need to be able to feel what it's like to be loved. And imagining parents is a good way to get there. But we, but we need to be able to in our bodies and in our and, and in our minds know that we are worthy and that we are enough. And so the capacity to, to know that and feel that is super important for us to be um, securely attached and function as a healthy adult. How, how we get there is, uh, is, is our job to figure out as, as professionals. The second thing that I took away from what you said is having a reflective capacity, i.e. we are willing to observe 
and sit with our pain. You know, things that we don't like about ourselves, about other people, our life, the ability to actually reflect on that and uh, be willing to connect the thought with an emotion so that we are coherent. And coherent doesn't necessarily mean pain-free. Coherence can bring pain because when you organize the mind, you start to make sense of it and actually start to feel and process. But it means there is a sense of, I understand who I am, how my past is affecting my future, where there's unhelpful behaviors, feelings, emotions coming out, things that I need, things that I don't need in the context of relationships or life. But you have a sense of what's going on and what makes you up as a person. And the third thing is collaboration, which is, uh, am I going out and interacting with my species? Am I, am I getting connection? Am I walking down to the corner store and instead of just buying my packet of gum, am I seeing that person as a human saying, hi, thank you? Um, the ability also to uh, not just connect, but be in service to others. So um, collaboration in its true sense isn't just connection, it's connection with action. So are those actions actually being directed to, well, how do I help this person from the smallest to the biggest task, but is my intention to make this person's life better? And those are the three three broader themes that I see from, from your more scientific and tactical themes. What's your reflection on, on that? The only thing I would add to that is around metacognition, there are two schools of thought. There's the Tavistock school, which looks at a general reflective capacity. And you mentioned the example of sitting with feelings, but then there's the Rome School, and the Rome School looks at specific metacognitive abilities. For example, metacognitive awareness is the ability to sit with feelings, as you used in your example. But a very different skill would be metacognitive regulation, that is the ability to sit with feelings in a way that has a dampening or regulatory effect on those feelings. Mm. A third metacognitive skill is the the metacognitive ability to reflect on how organized or disorganized your state of mind is at any given time. And these are specific skills and in certain patients are absent in one of those skills versus another and you have to match the right skill to the right patient otherwise it gets too general for example in dbt dialectical behavioral therapy this core mindfulness is said to be useful but core mindfulness means being aware of feelings but and that's taught to patients with borderline personality disorder diagnosis, but borderlines are quite aware of their feelings according to the research in Rome. They just can't be aware in a way that they can regulate their feelings, but people who are narcissistic are very good at regulating their feelings, but they're not very aware of their feelings and certainly very not very aware of their feelings in others. So you have to do a condition-specific analysis and say that for this given patient, that there are certain metacognitive skills that are missing that we need to develop. And for another patient, they'd be very different. So it's not just a general reflective metacognitive capacity. It's much more precise than that. Got it. So it's also the ability to then go and do something as a result of that and regulate. Right. So regulation would be a big one and organization of mind would be a big one. Right. And, and, and just quickly, I don't want to divulge too much, but what, what would you say is like, something that, that would fit into that category of, of regulation? What skills could we do to cultivate that? That when you reflect on your feelings, they actually have a dampening effect on the feelings so that you get into the mid-range of the middle path range, as you call it earlier, of not feeling either too much or too little. Right. Okay. And so, so yeah, I think that that all makes sense. And as an Uber theme, we're trying to stay in the middle here with all all relationships, all emotions, all mental health, which is not being... In, in at least in relationships, not being dismissing and cold and not talking about feelings and shut off, but also not being, I need you to survive, save me, uh, you know, I blend myself into you. So somewhere in the middle of those two things, the ability to feel loved, but also to be independent and be a healthy functioning adult is, is super important in every domain. And I can't even articulate how much I enjoyed that discussion with you, Dan, about that. That just has made my week, if not my year. Um, so the, uh, I think we've covered, uh, everything that I, I wanted to so far, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask such an expert and, and wise brain, um, in all your years of, of being in this field, you've seen a lot of patients do a lot of things and you've proven, um, that, that we can help people. What do you think is the, the biggest problem 
facing our world today, first of all. So, so why is mental health so bad and why we're we seeing suicide rates at the, the biggest rates ever? Um, and then second of all, what is the most helpful thing we can do as people every day to assist with our mental health? Well, I think in terms of the themes of what we talked about, there are two things here. One is if you look at base rates of attachment in modern Western culture, which means Europe and North America, the base rates of secure attachment are about 62% across studies, which means that one out of three people has dismissing, anxious, preoccupied, or disorganized attachment. That's pretty high. In traditional child-focused cultures, the base rates of secure attachment were about 80, 75, 80%, 85%. So over the years, we're not doing something right. We're, we're just too busy and not really attending to our kids enough. And so the base rates of secure attachment are going down, and that leads to lots of mental health problems. That's the first thing that we have to correct. The second thing is that children aren't learning the basic skills of paying attention anymore. So they don't learn to concentrate and sustain concentration and resist distraction, and all of the technology makes that worse. We have a a book coming out on concentration training for children. We've reviewed all of the, the the development of attention in kids and all the skills that go into various kinds of attentional training. We reviewed the studies on dysfunctional attention in children and adults, and we've reviewed all of the intervention studies, and then we offer concentration training at four developmental ages for four to six-year-olds for six to eight year olds for eight to 12 year olds and for adolescents and trying to integrate into the school system a curriculum to teach people to basic attentional skills because they're not learning them at home and they're not learning them in the culture in general and we figured the best way of doing that is to make it part of the school curriculum so we'll have a book coming out on attention development and training in children this may awesome and and what in all your years what's the best thing we can do to support our mental health people who grow up with disorganized attachment that in early adulthood that translates into most mental health problems so yeah early detection and treatment of disorganized attachment in kids is important awesome um and uh so i love the work you're doing with the attachment project um you're bringing all this stuff to life where consumers can come on and learn about their style and, and go through courses as well as clinicians as well. Um, so I would encourage everyone to check out attachmentproject.com. Uh, also, you've got so many books out there, um, Dr. Dan Brown, and, and, and to check you out there. There's another site called the Mind Only, and, and there all of the studies that we did in exercises on performance excellence, and there's a a full day training course and concentration training that's on that site. We're trying to pass it to the next generations. Yes. Well, um, I have a feeling, well, I'll be training with you next week directly underneath you as, as a, as a teacher. So I couldn't be more excited to continue this more formally and academically so that I can trans continue to translate these learnings through the work that we do at heart on my sleeve. Um, and I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your time today and for, um, starting this relationship with me. And thank you for all your work in trying to make this available, people. It's a really good service. I appreciate what you're doing. My emotions have a natural tendency to dissipate unless they get uh, reinforced. And so if there's more thoughts, more stories, more intentions come along. So the act of how am I leaving it alone is an act of not act adding more stories, adding fuel to it. So it might not go away in two minutes, but it then begins to relax and dissipate. And so rather than being the person who has to fix it, we become the person who makes space for the heart, the mind, to relax and settle away itself.